Today on the John Ankerberg Show, the new atheists are spreading the false assertion in national publications and university classrooms that religious beliefs constantly stand in conflict with scientific evidence. They seem not to know it was Judeo-Christian ideas during the 15th, 16th, and 17th century that gave rise to modern science today. In some polls, two-thirds of self-described atheists and one-third of self-described agnostics believe that the findings of science make the existence of God less probable. Materialists hold that matter and energy organize themselves by various strictly naturalistic processes to produce all the complex forms of life we see today. But other scientific discoveries deny this. Scientists have now discovered our universe had a beginning from nothing. They've also discovered that the laws of the universe are so fine-tuned that if one law was slightly different, it would affect all the others. Further, what about the discovery of digital information encoded in the DNA molecule of the cells in every living creature on Earth? How could this highly complex molecule come about by chance? My guest today is Dr. Stephen Meyer, who received his PhD in the philosophy of science from Cambridge University in England. His book, The Return of the God Hypothesis, is a USA Today national bestseller. We invite you to join us for this special edition of The John Ankerberg Show. Welcome to our program. I'm John Ankerberg, and my guest is philosopher of science, Dr. Stephen Meyer. He received his PhD from Cambridge University in England. Dr. Meyer has just published a brand new book, one of the three that he's got. Uh, it's USA Today national bestseller book, and it's called The Return of the God Hypothesis. And folks, it's loaded with information. I've got almost every line memorized and underlined twice in this book. And it explains how recent scientific discoveries support belief in God. So it's controversial. There are more people that want this guy for a debate. He could debate every afternoon and every night on the radio and over the internet and just people, atheistic scientists want to talk with him. And I've listened to eight of those debates. And so I'm saying they're really something and the information that's in this man's mind is just fun to listen to. I just love listening to him. Stephen, you open your book here by describing something that hit my heart I went to the University of Illinois and I was sitting in a crowd of 200 in a science class. And this little op-ed piece hit my heart. You open your book by describing a prominent professor of evolutionary psychology, David Barash of the University of Washington. He authored a very startling New York Times op-ed, but this is, this is so true. In it, he says, I give them, my students, the talk. The talk, yes. Okay? And he gives it every year to students, flatly informing, now listen, he flatly informs them that science has rendered belief in God implausible. David Barash further explains to his students, as evolutionary science has progressed, the available space for religious belief has narrowed. And he says it has demolished belief in an omnipotent and omnibenevolent God. 
And you note that Barash follows in a long tradition. So the first chapter of your book talks about many powerful people in our culture down through the years make this same claim. In particular, right now, we're facing the new atheist writers such as Richard Dawkins, Lawrence Krauss. I listened to both those debates that you had with them. They argue that science and religion conflict and that science undermines the credibility of belief in God. That's their argument. Stephen, tell us more about what the new atheists argue and the so-called conflict thesis between religion on one side and science on the other side. Sure, and many of your viewers would have already encountered these right. arguments and ideas. Certainly many of our students encounter them when they go through university. But the basic idea of the new atheism is that science properly understood undermines belief in God. And therefore there's an inherent conflict between the evidence we have about the natural world as reported by scientists and a belief in the deity. And Richard Dawkins perhaps explains this case best. He's brilliant at, at framing arguments. Mm -hmm. And he says that up until the 19th century, there was powerful evidence for the existence of God. And that was in the evidence of design that we have in the natural world. But since Darwin, we know that that evidence of design is illusory. It's merely the appearance of design, not actual design. And he says that because, according to Darwin's theory, there's an undirected, unguided process that can produce the appearance of design, the illusion of design, without there being a designing mind or intelligence guiding that process in any way. So we have design without a designer. That's the Darwinian view. And so since the 19th century, you've had the view that science and religion are in conflict. There's no public evidence for God. And as Dawkins puts it, therefore, you can believe in God if you want to, but it's essentially what he calls a delusion. He writes this book, The God Delusion. Now, the new atheists have gone further and said, well, not only are science and faith or science and belief in God in conflict today, but essentially they've always been in conflict. The scientific way of knowing and the religious way of knowing are completely different, and scientific evidence has always conflicted with religious belief. And so those are the two main propositions. They're in conflict now, and they've always been in conflict throughout the history of science and its relationship with religion. Yeah, and in your book you challenge this. You challenge the new atheist narrative about the relationship between science and theistic belief. You do that by first showing how Judeo-Christian ideas, and people don't know this, that first Judeo-Christian ideas actually, crucially contributed, listen to this, to the rise of modern science. So let's start where you do and look at their claims. Has science and religion always been in conflict? What do historians say? And this conflict thesis. In your book you argue that contrary to what the new atheists claim, the scientific revolution was fueled by Judeo-Christian thinking. You talk about it like it's the X factor, a transposition in thinking that was necessary for modern science to come about. I want you to tell the folks about what this X factor is. Yeah, well this is the big untold story as to the history of science. And almost all prominent historians of science have come to see this, that ideas that came out of the Judeo-Christian worldview, indeed even biblical ideas about the nature of God and the nature of, of the natural world, 
were essential to getting science going. And there's a famous historian from Cambridge University, historian of science named Joseph Needham, who argued that there had to be some X factor that could explain what historians of science call the scientific revolution. Roughly between 1500 and 1750, there was this great flowering of interest in the natural world and the development of very systematic methods for studying nature, which we now call scientific inquiry. Those methods uh, were not used in other cultures. There wasn't the same interest in the natural world. Yeah, we're talking about Roman culture, we're talking about Egyptian culture, Chinese culture, all, all of these cult very sophisticated cultures. The Chinese developed gunpowder and block printing. The Greeks had great philosophers. The Romans built aqueducts. But none of these even very sophisticated ancient cultures developed the systematic methods for studying nature that arose during this period of the scientific revolution. And historians of science have asked, why? Why right. there in Europe? Why then? And what they have almost universally come to in their understanding is that the X factor, the thing that explains that difference was the role of Judeo-Christian thinking, biblical ideas about the nature of nature and the nature of God. And there were three of those key, what they call presuppositions, that, that shifted the, the worldview in, of, of Western people in such a way to make science possible. Okay, what were those? Well, the first, it was uh, something that scientists at the time called the intelligibility of nature. Right. And that's the idea that nature is the product of an intelligent mind and therefore is endowed with rationality. And you can see that in the orderly concourse of nature. You can see it in the design of nature. And moreover, not only is nature the product of, a, of a, the divine mind, but we're able to understand that. There, there is, in a sense, a secret that nature has to reveal right. about its orderly uh, processes. And we're able to understand that secret. We're, understand, we're able to perceive the design and order in nature because our minds were made in the image of the creator of nature itself. So there's a principle of correspondence. The British physicist Sir John Polkinghorne put it, the reason built into nature matches the reason built into our minds. There's a connection. And so because we have an intelligence that has as its source the intelligence that built the world, we can understand the world. So that was the first big presupposition that inspired modern science. And it's really unique to the Judeo-Christian understanding of creation. Yeah, second one was order. Well, right, the idea that, that nature is orderly. Now, the Greeks believed that too. Many of the animist cultures and cultures in the East did not believe that, but the Greeks also believed in order. But there was a unique aspect of that belief in order in the Western Judeo-Christian mind, and that is that the order in nature that we now describe with the concept of the laws of nature, that order was a product of the divine mind, again, and that God was constantly upholding or sustaining those orderly processes that we observe, but also that the order could have been different. Uh, because God was a free agent and he could have ordered the world lots of different ways. So the Greeks had the idea that the order in nature was the order that seemed most reasonable to us. So therefore they thought they could sit and kind of do armchair philosophizing and figure it out. Yep. So for example, they thought that the, the orbits of the planets uh, were in perfect circles because the circle was the perfect form of motion and mm -hmm. therefore uh, the heavens, which were the quintessential realm, as they called it, must embody that perfect form of motion. Kepler came along later and said, well, we better look and see and make sure. And he found out that the orbits were actually elliptical. But that impulse to go and look and make sure was derivative of the idea that God could have ordered the universe in many different ways. 
I used to, when I was teaching, I used an example with my students. Um, got four different types of paintbrushes. They all have the same basic purpose, but each one is a little different for a slightly different application. So the Greeks thought if you could figure out the purpose of something, you could then deduce how it was made. If you knew the final cause, you could deduce all of Aristotle's other causes. But the scientists during the period of the scientific revolution thought, no, God could have made the world differently. Uh, Newton came up with something called an inverse square law, but it might have been an inverse cubed law to describe gravitational right. motion. So he had to go and look and see. And as Robert Boyle put it, uh, the, the great chemist during this period, he said, it's not the job of the natural philosopher, which is what they called scientists at the time, right. to deduce what God must have done. Instead, we must go and see what he in fact did do. So this idea of order combined with the idea of contingency, that nature was yep. contingent on the will of God, led to, first of all, the impulse to describe nature mathematically, but also to investigate it empirically, to look at it and, and study it carefully to see how God actually did make the world. Yeah, that's what contingency means. The fact is, is that there were many ways God was free to do it, and they believed that. And their job then was to figure out what did he do? Go look which, and find out, exactly. Which was one of the presuppositions that gave us modern science. You have to investigate. But yeah, so you, have, you have three in summary. The idea of the intelligibility of nature, the idea of the order of nature, and the idea of the contingency of nature. And one other that kind of came to prominence during the period of the Reformation, right. where, where the Reformed thinkers rediscovered the doctrine of the fall of man and the realization that humans are fallen not only in their impulses but in their intellect such that we can easily jump to conclusions and, uh, um, and have biases. And so they were aware that our theorizing needed to be checked against experience. We needed to make sure that our ideas were not uh, a matter of subjective bias and that they really matched the world. So that also led to the impulse to investigate empirically. And here's the thing, is that people will say, I'm not sure I believe that uh that during the Reformation and during that time period, way back then, that uh, this is really true. But you can prove it, anybody that goes to a library, all right? There were three metaphors that show up in books. They have pictures of them. And uh, talk about the three metaphors that were just all over the place that these guys used in their writings. They put pictures of them. They talked about them. What are the three metaphors? Well, this really hit me my first year as a graduate student in Cambridge when I was studying the history and philosophy of science. As I read the primary sources of figures like Robert Boyle, the great chemist, or Johannes Kepler, the astronomer, or Sir Isaac Newton, they continually used these metaphors that were clearly theological in character. And one of those was the idea that nature is a book or like a book. Yeah. Just as God has revealed himself through Holy Scripture, the, the, the book of the Bible, God has also revealed himself through the book of nature. And this metaphor implied, again, the intelligibility of nature. It's something that we could read and understand. Uh, but it also implied that there was a divine source. And so it also legitimated science as a separate realm of inquiry because if God had revealed himself through the natural world, there were some questions we couldn't answer just by reading the Bible. We had to look at the other book to, right. get the, to, to understand what he was telling us. So that was one of the key metaphors that you, you saw over and over. Another mm -hmm. one was the idea of nature is like a clock, which implied that nature as a system was designed. And this was one that you found repeatedly in the works of Robert Boyle. He said that, that uh, tis, uh, nature is like a rare clock where all things are so skillfully contrived that the engine being once set moving, 
all things proceed according to the artificer's design. So you have the idea that nature has a regularity to it, as uh, clockworks does, and that regularity is a product of an aboriginal design of a great mind, namely the mind of God. Yeah, Paley and Boyle both used an illustration in different centuries about if you were walking out in the woods and you found a watch, you wouldn't think that, you know, it just grew up with the grass or it fell off of a tree or something. That would show you the fact is somebody that was intelligent had made that watch and somebody had dropped it there. It didn't just, you know, it, it, it had design in it absolutely, already. Absolutely, absolutely. And you find that the early founders of modern science not only presupposed that nature was the product of a divine mind, but when they went and looked at nature, they saw evidence of that design that they talked about in their scientific works. One great example of that occurs in Newton's famous book, The Principia. At the end of The Principia, which is the book where he makes his case for universal gravitation, uh, he has a, a theological epilogue called the general scolium. And there he argues that though the law of gravity can explain why the planets stay in their stable orbits today, the law alone does not explain how the planets arrive their delicately balanced positions in relation to each other at the very beginning of the solar system. And so there he develops a very elegant, uh, what's called an initial condition fine-tuning argument. And if you don't mind, I'd r just read Please that do. passage. It's, it's, it's uh, What I love majestic. about this is that the people that were arguing, and you went back and you read the original to find out who was telling the truth, okay? And you put up the Latin script in your book, and I thought, give me a break, that, you know, you went back and read it in Latin? No, you got the English translation and you read it, so I was glad to hear that. Well, but yeah, let me, let me share this one passage. It's fascinating. Uh, Newton making a design argument right, right in the, uh, the Principia, which is arguably one of the two or three greatest works of physics ever written. Right. And he says, though these bodies, referring to the planetary bodies, may indeed continue in their orbits by the mere laws of gravity, they could by no means have first derived the regular position of the orbits themselves from those laws. Thus, this most beautiful system of sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being, capital B. So right in the Principia, which is arguably one of the two or three great works of physics ever written, Newton made a design argument for the existence of God on the basis of the intricately finely tuned planetary system that sustains our life on Earth. Uh, so you have this tradition of design arguments being made right in the, in the scientific works of the great founders of modern science, which leads to the third great metaphor uh, Newton's work does, and that is the metaphor of the laws of nature, the idea that nature is a lawful realm. And the great historian of science, Edward Zilsel, who's investigated the, kind of the origin of this use of this term, has shown that applying the idea of the laws of nature to nature was unique to the period of the scientific revolution. And he says it was a juridical metaphor, a legal metaphor of theological origin. It implied that the order of nature was the product of God's constant sustaining power, as it says in scripture. And Newton very much believed this and believed that the lawful regularities that he described with mathematics which were a product of God's, as one of my Cambridge supervisors put it, constant spirit action. It's God holding the universe together, and that explains the, the regularities that we see around us. Yeah. Also, the fact is, tell the folks that when Newton came out with this, 
it was mind-blowing even to the Christians that had these presuppositions because they had never thought about the fact of why is the moon up there and why does it control the tides? Oh, this was the, his exper the, the mysterious aspect of Newton's theory was right. called action at a distance. Because nobody could see what, these, what was holding it in. The scientists at the time thought the best types of explanations involved mechanical pushing and pulling. That was the clock metaphor. But Newton slightly broke with that because he described the gravitational attraction between the moon and the earth and other planetary bodies and the earth and the sun, but there was no pushing and pulling. The, the force of gravity was transmitted through a distance with no mechanical action intervening in between. There was no, the earth doesn't push the moon or vice versa, but the force is transmitted through empty space. So how does that happen? And this was greatly mysterious. Newton publicly said, uh, hypothesis non fingo in the Latin, which is to say, I, I don't feign to know the cause. But privately, he acknowledged that what he thought was that, that this action at a distance was actually a manifestation, not of a material cause, but of an immaterial cause, that is the Spirit of God holding the universe together by the word of His power, as it says in the New Testament. Was this the beginning of intelligent design? Can you tell that the guys actually thought that way and used that term even back then? There were very specific design arguments that echoed things that came later, and you saw that in the works of, of Boyle in particular, but also of Newton. In our next program, we're actually be talking more about what they did, but the fact is there's also going to become a break, and three guys were responsible, at least, Darwin, Marx, and Freud. What happened that switched the thinking of everybody? Well, in the 19th century, there was a break from this theistic foundation of modern science that we've been talking that about. That God was in charge. And there were, there were two main reasons for that. One was that the, the natural scientists themselves began to formulate explanations for the origin of things that did not involve the hand of a designing agent. Uh, Laplace, a French physicist, came along and attempted to explain the solar system without reference to a designing hand. Darwin did the same thing for biology. And so by the end of the 19th century, there was a kind of seamless naturalistic narrative about where everything had come from that did not involve a designing agent or intelligent agent of any kind. Also, there were great figures like uh, uh, Darwin, for one, but also Marx and Freud. Darwin told us where we came from. Marx had a utopian vision of the future and an idea about where the human race was going. And Freud told us what to do about the human condition, what to do about human guilt. And between the three, they answered the, the very most fundamental worldview questions that previously Judeo-Christian religion had answered. And so by the end of the 19th century, elite intellectuals were more inclined towards a materialistic or naturalistic worldview that denied the reality of God and certainly God's involvement in nature, uh, as opposed to that earlier theistic foundation that gave rise to modern science. Yeah, folks, we're just starting, and I want to say thank you for joining us today. Uh, we've learned how the God hypothesis helped to bring about the scientific revolution and the birth of modern science. It actually started this period we're talking about. We're also going to look next week why the God hypothesis fell out of favor. We just started talking about the 19th century and the early 20th centuries. And we're gonna look at some of the modern science discoveries of the 20th century that are bringing back the God hypothesis. Remember, Stephen's book is called the return 
of the God hypothesis. That means that at one time they held to the God hypothesis, then there was a breaking about it, but the fact is then there's a third deal which we're in right now, and that is that science itself is calling back these interpretations. There's a designer out there, and science itself is the one is shoving people in that way. Uh, I thank you again for joining us, and it's great information. I hope you'll join us next week, but please stay tuned because I have a personal word for you in just a moment. Stay tuned. John will be right back. Thanks for joining me today. If you'd like to have all of the information in our current TV series with Dr. Stephen Meyer, it's entitled, The New Scientific Evidence That Points to the Existence of God. We are making available all nine TV programs in a package of three DVDs for a gift of only $117. Then, we are also making available Dr. Steve Meyer's award-winning 568-page hardcover book, The Return of the God Hypothesis, for a gift of only $25. And if you would like to have all four of the items mentioned, they are available together for a special gift of just $120. Finally, I highly recommend three hour-long state-of-the-art computer animated documentary films for the special price of only $30. They are called The Privileged Planet, in which you will see modern biology, physics, cosmology, and astronomy that point toward a supernatural creator Second, Unlocking the Mystery of Life, which will transport you by state-of-the-art computer animation into the interior of the trillions of cells in our bodies to show you the systems and machines that are present and bear the unmistakable hallmarks of God's design. And then third, Darwin's Dilemma, why the new scientific evidence about the origin of life may put an end to Darwinian evolution. Now, if you wish to order any of these items individually, or all of them together, you may call us now at 1-800-805-3030. That's 1-800-805-3030. Or you may order these items on our website right now at jashow.org. That's jashow.org. And then those of you who live in Canada may order these materials by calling us at 1-866-746-5803. That's 1-866-746-5803. And our Canadian website is jashow.ca. And when we receive your gift, we will send you a receipt and a personal thank you. Next week on The John Ankerberg Show. An infinitely old universe, this is Robert Dickey from Princeton, he said an infinitely old universe would relieve us of the necessity of explaining the origin of matter at any finite time in the past. But if the universe has a beginning, we have to look to something beyond matter, beyond the material realm, beyond the physical realm of matter, space, time, and energy. Yep as a cause of that beginning point.
This program is sponsored by the John Ankerberg Show Ministries and is made possible by the grace of God and your faithful prayers and gifts.